to Walk in the Truth podcast. How do we know where to find answers to the toughest questions in life? While the simplest answer is the Bible, where do we start this search and how do we discover this truth? Today, in this teaching podcast, John Metter, lead pastor of Cross City Church, takes a specific text of the Bible and helps us find truth for the life we're searching for. so happy to be back in the book of Genesis today, and if you'll take your Bibles and turn to that very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 4, is where we're going to be. Finding God in a Chaotic World is the title of our message. And we'll be walking through Genesis 4 through chapter 11 over the next few weeks, leading up to Easter, and, and uh, I think you might have heard last week, if you were here, a number of times the statement was made, if you're looking for answers for life's questions, begin in Genesis chapter 1 through 11. And I really believe that with all my heart because there you have God's creative revelation. He's telling us everything we need to know in those first few chapters of the book of Genesis. So Genesis chapter 4 beginning in verse 1 today. And as we begin, let me just ask you to imagine a highway for life. A highway for life. And imagine for a moment that that highway for life has two choices on it. One way is what we would call a narrow way. It's guarded by guardrails, it's very uh, paved, it's strong and solid and stable. It's got signs along the way, it's uh, got lights on this roadway so that no matter whether it's day or night, you see the place that you're going. It even has rest stops that you need along the way. It's got a map, it actually has an active guide to take you as you go down this highway. That's one road. Then I want you to also imagine a different road, an exit off this main road, this narrow road, and we would call this a broad road. And no matter where you are, you can get off the main road and get on this broad road. Now, this broad road is very different from the main road, the narrow road. The broad road is not paved, it's not solid. You're not sure what you're going to have on the other side of the hill that you're heading for. It's not lit up, it has no lights, has no signs, no maps, no guides, and you don't know where you'll end up if you take that road. In a very real way, Genesis chapter 4 is about the story of two roads. One is one that God has given us, that's lit, it's paved, it's predictable, it's clear, it has guardrails, and you know where you'll end up. But the other road is the road that anyone can choose to go on, and it can lead almost anywhere. When you read your Bible, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, it's an amazing picture of God's creation and His beauty of His creation, the clarity, the, uh, the power of His creation, the power of who He is, and the amazing provision that He gives us in those two chapters is just incredible. Seven-day creation, God is at work every day. He speaks and things come into existence, and they, they still go as they went when He created the heavens and the earth. Now, Genesis 3 is the picture of the fall of mankind. Adam and Eve are in the garden and they make choices that God has forbidden them to make and temptation takes place and sin takes place and they step off the highway that God has built for them and God comes and finds them in the garden and makes provision for that sin and brings them back to a place close to Him. But Genesis chapter 4 is the chaos man creates as a result of getting off the road and continuing their own way. Genesis chapter 4 is that broad road. Genesis chapter 4 is a group of people that move in a different direction 
from the direction God has given them. And you began in chapter 4 saying this, this road that ends in catastrophe and that many are still on. It's really the story of Cain and Abel and the choices they make and how they worship God and how they even came about. Would you stand with me as we read Genesis chapter 4? I'm going to read 16 verses there. Now the man, that would be Adam, had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And we're going to spend some time in verse 1 in a bit. Verse 2, again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and their fat portion. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. The Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you've driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, Whoever therefore kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, so that no one finding him would slay him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Father, in Jesus' name, illuminate this for us. Such an important part of this very first family and the directions they took. Help us be warned and encouraged about the right way we should go in. We ask this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. Be, be seated if you would. Well, there's uh, so many verses here. It won't be possible for us to really cover all of these the way we would like to, but it is possible to hit the high point in this story, in this text, because it really is such an important thing. In this room today are two different kinds of people. There are the people who embrace what God says in Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 11, and who find answers and clarity for the reality of life in those answers. There are those that are coming at worship in a different way, who have their own ideas, their own thoughts, and they're part of that broad way that we spoke of just a moment ago. But what I want you to do today, I want you to know that God makes it possible for us to find him in even the darkest of situations. He makes it possible for us to find him in true history and in true worship. Those two things are the priorities today. And when I say true history, I'm talking about the history of the creation of the world. You're going to find some things out today about how important it is to understand and to lean into the creation of the history of the world as we have this account from God that I bet you've never heard before. There's some things that I'll say today that I did not know 
until this past week, some interesting insights and some important things that we have to hold on to. I want to encourage you today to lean into the creation account that God gives us in Genesis chapter 1 all the way through chapter 11 because the fluidity we have in this world today and the absence of absolute truth and the morality that has gone in a different direction are the result of not leaning into and leaning on what God says took place in Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 11. We're even going to see how Abel and Cain have a different view of how God created it even then at that time. I also want to say this, I I think it's very important for us to acknowledge that the majority view in populations today about creation is not biblical creation. It is not God as creator, but the majority view, the view that more people have than any uh, other category is the view that evolution has taken place, that God is not required to bring about the world that we have today, and all kinds of philosophies and theories about how it came into being are the majority view today. What that means is that among us, the people of the Church of Jesus Christ, we must get behind, encourage, especially our younger generation, to find their answers in the book of Genesis and to be equipped to have conversations with those that do not believe as we believe but have conversations in a persuasive, loving way with our culture because we are outnumbered in what we believe versus those who believe in a very, very different way. So let's go to Genesis for just a few moments and see what we can find out about key questions about how to find God in chaos and where to find Him and how to be able to defend that. Number one, this text tells us that you can find God in history. And when I say history, I mean true history. The history of creating and framing the world that we live in by a creator God. Who at the end of chapter 2 and at the end of all these creative acts said, not only was it good, but he said it was very good. And one of the biggest battles we face today is the battle for the truth about true history, about this creative history. And nowhere is it more evident than the issue of creation itself. The questions that our culture is asking today is, did God really create the heavens and the earth? Or did they come about by evolution, a big bang theory and some other things that created the world that we have today? Or is it some mix of the two? Is there a God who somehow allowed evolution to make it take place so that it all happened, but also science is right as well? And I just need to tell you today that science will position itself against the God of creation and the revelation of Scripture. You're going to have to make a choice. Because when you blend those two, the Bible becomes impossible to truly understand. If you're really trying to read in evolution to the creation account, there's no way you can see exactly what God is saying and what He is doing and what He has for us. It's so important for us to come to the place of leaning in on what God said. Now, the Bible... God's Word was written so that we might have an accurate history of the world from the beginning and to believe in the God who created it. I'm going to link those two truths together today in a very, very important way because the Bible helps us to understand how God created, but He also helps us to understand that He created the heavens and the earth so that we can not only worship Him for all of His power and all that He did, but we can see why and how He did all this and how we then interact with people around us. I have to tell you that atheists and scientists and others who want to create doubt about 
the historical record of creation have not succeeded in eradicating the creation account. All they've succeeded in doing is creating skepticism and doubt among those that wrap their minds around that. But if you buy into the man-made view of the creation of the world, you'll struggle to find God in it. In fact, you'll struggle to find God anywhere. If God didn't create heavens and the earth, then what right would he have to interfere or to intervene into it? If life is not about God's purpose and plan, then where do you find a purpose and plan in life? If there is no meaningful reason why things that are difficult happen to us, then everything is chance. Nothing is worth living for. You're going to find it difficult to worship a God, the God of creation, if you don't lean into his creation account. And that creation account is taught at churches, the pillars and grounds of truth. It's taught in homes where truth is passed on to the next generation. It's taught in certain schools that embrace this idea of biblical creationism. All these things are so important, but we are in the minority, and we need to know how to defend our faith. Here's what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to come to the place where you acknowledge that many just will not buy into the creation account. Therefore, they will not believe your answers and believe your understandings of how God created and what it all means. And I'll answer a few of those questions that come up over and over based on Genesis chapter 4 in just a moment. But you're just going to have to accept the fact that not everyone will agree with you. And not everyone will agree with the Bible. But you also have to accept the fact that all of our choices— and all of our consequences and all of the fluidity that we find in life with every subject on the planet have to do with not being willing to buy into, to lean into God's creative history and the Word of God itself, the truth. So here we go today as we begin to look into this. You can find God in history. We have a biblical worldview, and this is the view that informs us with all the answers we need to have. So what does this true history tell us? Well, go to chapter 4, verse 1. Let's read that again very slowly. Now, the man had relations with his wife, Eve. Now, please keep in mind, Genesis 1 through 3, God has given us great details about creation and the world and the earth and Adam and Eve. And now he's giving us further detail about how the families of the earth move forward. Now, the man had relations with his wife, Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Now, if you're not, you and I are going to lean into biblical history, we're going to find answers to cultural questions right here in verse 1. If you're going to lean into the account that God gives us in the book of Genesis, we're not going to be confused about what the rest of the world says about things like marriage and, and, and sexuality and, and gender and all the confusion and fluidity we hear today. We're not going to have questions. We're going to have answers. We're going to know what God's design is. Let me give you an example of that. There are four questions that I believe this text answers for us today. And in doing so, we can see God's presence in what he says to us. First of all, what does this text say about biblical marriage? Now, if you go back to the verse and answer the question, what does this text say about biblical marriage? It says that God designed for one man and one woman to be married. And that's the pattern God gave us from the beginning. The original man, Adam, had relations with the original woman created out of Adam, who is Eve, and she conceived and gave birth. So that says that God has a pattern. One man, one woman for life, and he designs for them to be get together. Now, 4,000 years of human history passed between 
Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and the Lord Jesus walking on the face of the earth. And one day, Jesus is in conversation with a group of people who ask him about divorce, but he answers a question in a different way than they imagined, and he affirms the creation account in doing so. Matthew 19, verse 4. Jesus said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? In other words, from the beginning, God created marriage to be one man and one woman, and from the beginning, that's been true. So what Jesus is doing is he's affirming the true and indisputable creation and design for mankind. He's simply saying, this is what I created marriage to be, and this is what it should be. Then he answers the second question in Genesis chapter 4, what does this say about sexual relations? And it says that the man had relations with his wife Eve by design. Heterosexuality is a normative, it's a predetermined plan that God had for mankind. In fact, it's the only plan God had for sexuality. It's not one of many on the ranges of a spectrum of sexuality or gender. But again, Jesus affirms this in Matthew chapter 19, again, 4,000 years ago. Now, just imagine for a moment, 4,000 years going by, hundreds of millions of people being born and living and dying, all these philosophies, all these different kinds of ideas about marriage or sexuality. And, and after all this time passes, Jesus again refers back to creation and says, no, this is the only design that God has. Amen. Matthew 19, verse 5 it says, And he said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Right. Now, I know we live in a culture that asks a lot of questions, and they don't always start from the same place we start from when we start from the Bible. They come from a perspective of relativism or atheism, or they come from the perspective of just secular thought. So their ideas about these questions are going to be very, very different. That doesn't mean that we can't love them. It doesn't mean that we can't have a conversation with them. But what it does mean is we're going to have to agree to disagree, but we need to know why we disagree. We disagree because the Bible tells us one way, and the world tells us a very different way. And until a person is willing to come to the place of seeing what God did and why God did it, they may never agree with us completely. But we can lovingly tell them, this is the creation account that God gave us. This is where we stand. And we lovingly reach out to anyone else that disagrees in any way with that. It's very important for us to have an incredible witness in the world with people that will vehemently disagree with us. Now, there are times when I've had conversations where people would say that Jesus never said anything about homosexuality or homosexual marriage. But when they say that, and when they ask that, they forget that marriage is affirmed by Jesus as exclusively a man and a woman. And by virtue of that, it excludes every other kind of marriage, not his design. And Jesus very clearly said there are two genders in marriage, and these are the two genders that he created, a male and a female. And only this marriage in the eyes of Jesus Christ is one flesh. Nothing else is acceptable to God or the Scripture, and God, of course, is that creator. So we have that answer. Then there's another question we can ask. What does this say about biology and childbirth? Do you notice what the verse says, verse 1? She conceived and gave birth. And, uh, of course, that's not unexpected. We know that's one of the primary purposes for sexual relations between a man and a wife. But it also goes on and says, with the help of the Lord. Now, there's something being communicated here for us today. 
These words imply the miraculous and sacred acknowledgement that God is in this whole process of conceiving and giving birth and that bounds of marriage. Really a beautiful, powerful picture. Somehow in our world, we have so devalued conception, so devalued children and childbirth and that whole process that we don't see them as being with the help of the Lord. It's not just a biological miracle. It's the fact that God weaves people in the womb. He, he creates and weaves us in the womb, it says in the book of Psalms. And if you go through the Old Testament, you're going to find Hannah talking about how she conceived with the help of the Lord. And the psalmist talking about that powerful miracle that goes on inside of the womb. And let me just say to you today, you're not an accident of birth either. No matter how it was you were conceived, God was aware. God knew he wove you in the womb. You are a valued being because God was involved with that process. Aren't you glad that's true? But our world would say that it's not true. Our world would prefer to think there is no value and that therefore anything conceived is not truly a person, not truly valuable. I remember when we first had our first child, I was so mesmerized by the whole process. And I know I'm the guy and I know the woman is the one that actually gives birth. There's no question about it. She has the harder job. But I remember being in that birthing room. This was during the era where they were first starting to let men in that birthing room. And, and I'm telling you, I got so excited about it. I was really asking questions. After our daughter was born, I actually said, can I help somebody else do that? Can I see this again? <laughs> and I meant right away. I didn't mean another year down the road. I meant right away. You know, and they had to correct me and say, back off. You're a little bit too uh, overcome with joy there in the moment. <laughs> but what a miracle. Our child with features from both my wife and myself, an amazing thing. What an incredible miracle God does in giving us birth. And it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 4. Listen, if we can affirm that and see the beauty of that in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, why cannot we embrace all the other parts of that? They all go together. They all go together. God speaks about biology and childbirth. Every child is a child from conception and is valued and to be preserved. What an important truth for us. A fourth question this verse answers is, what does this say about gender clarity? Notice immediately the biological birth of a boy leads them to declare the gender at birth. I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Gender is not a decision to be made later on. Gender is an acknowledgement and a declaration of exactly what you have when that child is born. Our culture would say something entirely different, but here's why we disagree with that. Because from the beginning, it's been clear that God wove that child in the womb and at birth, sometimes today before birth, we know the gender of that child. And at that moment, we simply declare what that child is. I've gotten a man-child from the Lord. Listen, when we stay on the road that God has placed for us, there's a lot of clarity. But when you get off that road, you make your own way, your own rules, your own ideas, your own thoughts, your own gender, your own sexuality, your own everything else. You have no idea where that destination goes, but it's away from the direction of the Lord. You can find God in history, in true history, when you go back. And when you look at how he created the heavens and the earth, but this text is not just about that. Verse 1 lays some great truths down, but this text is really about true worship. You can find God in worship. 
This is the story of Cain and Abel and the difference in how they worship God. So the Bible says in the course of time, they came and brought an offering to the Lord. Now, we've got some presumptions here. I presume, and most scholars presume, that Adam and Eve's experience with God, after they sinned, God slew an innocent animal, blood was shed, sin was covered, relationship was restored. That that truth was passed on to Cain and Abel in the course of time. So when they came, they understood that original pattern of worship, the original pattern that God had with Adam and Eve, and they came in the way they came to God, having had some information about that. That's presumed because it doesn't actually say that. But it seems logical to be able to pass down to your children the most important thing that you can do in worshiping God. I'm sure Adam and Eve did that well. But here's what the Bible says. When these two came to the Lord with an offering, in verse 4 and 5 it says, And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain became angry and his countenance fell. Now, if you read the Bible, you're going to find many, many instructions about how to worship God and the spirit in which you worship Him, different commands about what you do when you worship. And it begins with that seventh day of rest when God rested and called man to just look at all of creation and marvel at what God had done. And that was a day of rest. And so God has built worship into the fabric of our week as a regular devotion to the Lord in life. That's just part of what God laid down at the beginning. And let me just say to you, I know I'm preaching to the choir today in a sense because you're in the room, but how important it is for you to be in the room corporately worshiping God with other people. How important it is for us to marvel together at our powerful God and how he works and intervenes and how he loves and reaches out. It's so incredibly, amazingly important for us to be standing next to people side by side, worshiping him with our whole hearts. It's so encouraging, but it's so important to you because you know you're never alone. And you know, your God is working in your life. You experience his presence in your life. It's such a big deal. But these verses here tell us that God will look favorably upon some worship. And he will look unfavorably on other types of worship. And you're going to need to know this. This takes up such a huge part of our lives. Since worship and service are all we can offer God, worship is vitally important. We can assume several things about this worship experience, but here's what we can know. We can know that the scripture, the words we've just read, emphasize the person before it emphasizes the manner of worship. Go back and see what it says again in verses 4 and 5. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. For Cain and his offering, he had no regard. In other words, before we actually worship, we should offer our heart. We should offer ourselves to the Lord. Before we offer our songs, before we offer our offerings or anything else, we offer ourselves to the Lord. And realize the worship experience is really about sinful man coming to worship a holy God. And remember, we don't do this casually. We don't take this lightly. It's a very, very serious privilege we have of being able to worship God and really be able to connect with him. But let's learn some lessons from Cain and Abel. First of all, Abel worshiped by faith. Cain did not. Abel worshiped by faith. Cain did not. Now, the reason we know this is because this worship experience is also repeated several times in scriptures and referred back to. If you go to the book of Hebrews, the hall of faith, that great chapter, chapter 11, it says this about Abel. It says, for Abel, 
He offered to God by faith a better sacrifice than Cain. The American standard begins with the words by faith. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice. Now, if you want to know the difference between the two, here's where you start. Because the New Testament clarifies why this sacrifice was so different. It's such a simple line. But I think what you're going to find is that it opens the door to significant worship in your life. Or it closes the door to significant worship in your life. Abel brought an offering to the Lord with a pure and worshipful heart. His faith and his trust was in God and not in himself. We know that much because he came by faith. Now, if you take Hebrews chapter 11 and read verses 1 through verse 4, you're going to find out how that's defined in Cain and Abel's situation. So let's go back and read verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the men of old gained approval, referring all the way back to Cain and Abel. By faith, we understand, catch this, that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice. Don't miss this. Do you see the connection between his worship and his view of creation? Do you see a connection between his worship and his view of who God was? He believed that God created his world and himself. And therefore, because of that kind of faith, In this God who created not only the world but himself, he leaned on God. He trusted God. He sought God. He listened to God. And he would be changed by that worship experience with God. He acknowledged that God was the creator, that he is able, that he's all-powerful and all-wise. His worship revealed so much about his heart. He considered that the God he worshiped made the worlds out of things which are not visible. So powerful. In Luke chapter 16, along about verse 31, Jesus is talking about the man in hell in Hades. And the man in hell in Jesus' story appeals for someone to go tell his brothers about the Messiah. And Jesus in Luke chapter 16, verse 31 said this, If they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they listen if one comes to them from the dead. In other words, if you can't believe Moses' account of creation, if you can't believe the prophets that point to Jesus, then you're not going to believe if Jesus comes to you from the dead and appears in front of you. You need to believe the whole revelation of God. You need to believe the picture of who God actually is. And Abel was able to do that. He looked at his world and the creation that he was placed in, and he basically said, the world is yours, and I am yours. I bend my knee to you. And Cain did not. Cain did not. We're told by that contrast that Cain did not worship by faith. So his view must have been the opposite of that, which is this world is mine and my life is mine. I'll acknowledge you however I want, but my life is mine. Let me tell you, that's so common today for people to come to God and say, well, you are who you are. I'll give you what I want to give you. My life is mine. This world is mine for the taking. But there is a certain kind of worship that God approves of and a certain kind of worship that God does not approve of. And that was Cain's approach to God. You know, worship is incredibly important, and we see that here in this passage. Not only was faith the difference maker, but Abel worship in obedience, and Cain did not. 
Now, Genesis doesn't say a great deal about Cain from this point on, but 4,000 years later, the New Testament church in the book of Jude does. And it describes what we know as creepers in the book of Jude, false teachers, people who are going their own way, who are trying to corrupt the New Testament church. And the word they describes those people. But in Jude chapter 1, verse 11, it says, For they, those creepers, have gone the way of Cain. In other words, that phrase by now has become an acceptable and understandable phrase of what went wrong back then in Genesis 4. They have gone the way of Cain. And for pay, they've rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and have perished in the rebellion of Korah. So stay with me here. Jude describes people like Cain who disregarded God's command and made their own way, made their own worship. They were making a show of worship, but their hearts were far from God. In a word, Cain was simply rebellious. His refusal wasn't accidental. He intentionally and fatally ignored God. And not only did, God, did Cain fail to have faith in God and obey God, God, Cain's way of dealing with God became a downward spiral for everything else in his life. I mean, this is heartbreaking. How can the first child of the first two human beings look at creation, look at God, look at himself and all the animals and the plants and everything in the world and say, I'm going to go my own way. I don't need to worship that God. I want to tell you today, it's difficult for us to grasp why sometimes our own children in 2023 don't follow the Lord. Some of you have grief in your heart. I know what that's like. I know what that feels like to have kids that we've taught the truth but who turn their backs on God for one reason or another. But can you imagine that in the very first generation? Can you imagine that with the very first son that Adam and Eve had? And if you go even further back, can you imagine even Adam and Eve deciding to disobey God in the Garden of Eden? What does that say about the free will of man? And what does that say about just the grief of going our own way and moving off the road that's narrow but true that God has given us to walk on. But here's an encouraging thing in the middle of it all. Look at God's appeal to Cain. I just love this. Sometimes I weep about this. In Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, God came looking for them in the garden. Isn't that a great picture? Because God was going to do everything to give them the opportunity to be restored. And he did restore them. He does the same thing to Cain. He reaches out. He says, if you do well, verse 7, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desirous for you, but you must master it. Here's the appeal of a merciful God, a loving God, and the kind of appeal that we need to have for people all around us. Don't you know you have a choice to make? That God offers you a choice so that you can come back to him. But in spite of personally conversing with Cain. Cain ignores God. Cain goes his own way. And the rest of his life can be described in four quick statements. Cain became angry. Cain killed Abel. Cain lied to God. Cain is judged. What a horrific ending that didn't have to happen, but did because this man would not worship God. Listen, today, we have so many that have to make choices today, and it all comes down to worship. Who will we worship? Who will we lean into? Who will we trust? Who will we obey? Who we worship and how we worship affects everything in our lives. Everything. What you believe about the Bible affects you whether you know it or not. 
And throughout the Bible, there are all these encouraging lines that I want to remind you of today. Lines where God consistently says, seek me and you'll find me Amen. when you search for me with all your heart. And almost every one of those times that those words are spoken, they're spoken into a dark time, dark cultures, most going in the wrong direction. And then there's this invitation, just like in the Garden of Eden, just like with Cain, for us in those times. I want to remind you of some of those. David told his son Solomon at the beginning of his reign, if you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Solomon later wrote the Proverbs and affirmed this about God and about wisdom. I love those who love me and those who diligently seek me will find me. You can find God in darkness. God spoke to the prophet Jeremiah. This is the famous text, chapter 29, verse 13. You will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all of your heart. What an encouraging word. And then Jesus said the same thing in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. Ask 